Welcome to the pictures. We are a stream along film commentary podcast. In this episode, we are talking about Interstellar 2014. Alright, welcome to the pictures. Uh, my name is Daniel Barkley. In this episode, uh, we're going to be talking about Interstellar, 2014 film by Christopher Nolan. Uh, before we get there, a few housekeeping notes. So, uh, we are on the one-a-week schedule until we find a co-host, which is necessary for a podcast of this type. I am in no rush to find a co-host, however, because I am working on a different podcast that does not... Uh, require a co-host and it's taking up an enormous amount of time i had no idea i was supposed to launch september 7th or something it's not gonna happen it's not gonna i'm not, I'm not gonna launch till october uh around the the turn of the month probably so um that's just the way that it is but it is going to be a f- absolutely fantastic podcast and i'll let everybody know uh when that drops uh also i have a personal website up so danielbarkley.com uh, you can go all go there and check out the projects that I'm working on, including uh, the pictures, this project. Um, what else have I been up to? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's, uh, that's pretty much it. I will let everybody know when the new podcast is ready. It is not film-related, but it is, uh, it is going to be very good, and I hope everybody enjoys it. Uh, but this one will keep going. And because it is a fun thing to do, and sometime around when the podcast launches, so October, I will find a co-host for this podcast, and this thing can can really start to get going. But until then, we're just going to do the once a week, and and this week it's Interstellar, which is uh, one of my favorite films. It's not a perfect film, as we'll see, but it certainly is one of my favorite films. So, uh, Interstellar, 2014 film directed by Christopher Nolan, written by Christopher Nolan and his brother Jonathan Nolan, who uh, very often work together, uh, starring Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, uh, Bill Irwin, Ellen Burstyn, and Michael Caine. Who is Ellen Burstyn? She must be the daughter? Oh, no, no, she's the... um, old version of Jessica Chastain's character. Um, uh, released 2014. Uh, this was a very a critical success, also a huge commercial success, uh, as is often the case with Christopher Nolan's films. Uh, made $700 million at the box office. Uh, and of course, that's just the box office. It's also made a lot more money uh, on VOD, and now it's streaming and everything else. I should mention it is streaming right now on paramount plus which is the reason why i chose to do interstellar because it is streamable at the moment if you have paramount plus uh, of course you can also rent uh the film um my personal experience with this film is i saw it not that long after it came out probably 2016 2017 somewhere around that period of time i did not see it in theaters this is a movie that'd be great uh to see in theaters but i i did not uh see it that way uh and um uh, i enjoyed it i enjoyed it deeply i i i think it was my first impression of the film where this is 
you know, exactly the sort of sci-fi that I like. It's very close to being scientifically entirely accurate. Uh, um, but of course, there's a good story there as well. There's a good narrative. It, it's everything you want in a film, plus it's scientifically accurate and it and it explores uh, sci-fi issues, which I think is uh, is great. And Nolan Nolan is a great um, filmmaker uh, in in that he can work in multiple different genres. Right? Uh, we just, we have done a, a Nolan film on the show before, Tenet, which I did not like very much. Um. But many, but he he works in the crime genre. He works in the sci-fi genre. Uh, I I don't think he did a great job with the spy genre. But he he is a filmmaker that can work in many different films. He he did uh, Dunkirk, which is a film I really love uh, about war. So that's sort of the war genre. So he's a filmmaker who can you know enter different genres, sort of tease out exactly what makes that genre work. And make a great film in in really any genre, and that's one thing I love about Nolan Nolan's work, and that's one thing I love about this film. Is he sort of nailed uh, he sort of nailed the sci-fi genre. I think um, there are some criticisms of the film that I have though, and we'll get into those. But overall, my impression was this is a, this is this is a fantastic uh, film, and the final scene to me is is what really stands out as uh, as. Um, my first impressions of the film when I first saw it. That, I thought the final scene, uh, the narration, uh, and and the image of Anne Hathaway on on the new home, the new planet, was just that was fantastic. So um, and that gave me chills. And that's what you want in a film. But you want a film that can give you um, an emotional reaction. Um, I should mention some of the technical stuff that I did not go over. Like many of Nolan's films, uh, it's a bit more complicated than it. And then, then your average film. So it isn't two three nine aspect ratio, but it was shot in both IMAX and in thirty five millimeter film. Uh, I don't know exactly how much of shot was which. It was released in IMAX, but I don't. I mean, I don't think they shot the whole thing with IMAX cameras. I think they they did a print for IMAX where some of it was shot in IMAX and some of it was blown up from thirty five millimeter. Uh, also, some of it I think is in seventy millimeter. <laughs> Maybe not the IMAX format, but a different form, seventy millimeter format. So again, it gets really complicated. No one likes to do this. He likes to use IMAX cameras when he can, uh, and then sort of splice it together. Um, and yeah, that's it. But basically, it's in the two three nine aspect ratio, uh, shot in a mixture of thirty five millimeter and IMAX. Uh, and of course, what you're seeing on your streaming services is uh, a s- digital scan of, I would guess, a 35 millimeter print, or the maybe, yeah. I mean, basically, I mean, may- maybe they're scanning a 70 millimeter print, but you wouldn't notice the difference on a digital scan, I don't think, because it's scanned in 4K. It's interesting as TVs get um, higher and higher resolution, maybe it like. You know, when you start having 16K TVs, you might be able to notice the difference between a 70 millimeter scan or a 35 millimeter scan. I don't know, but uh, for the moment, I don't think there's much of a difference. What you're seeing is basically a, a digital equivalent of a 35 millimeter quality um, scan. And um, but if you did see this movie in theaters, and especially in the IMAX theaters, uh, you would have a different experience, right? You would have certain uh, certain scenes would be a uh, much higher resolution um and so i i do kind of wish i 
looking back now, I do kind of wish I'd seen this. This is one movie where I this was would actually be awesome to see in theaters, especially in an IMAX theater. So, um, yeah, if you saw it in an IMAX theater, I think you're very lucky. I, I kind of wish they would show it again. Maybe they do. I don't know. It, it, this is this would be a great movie to like. Cause a lot of those IMAX theaters are located in like science centers or something. This actually would be a great movie just to keep playing. Maybe maybe they do that. I don't know. But um, but in any case, yeah. Uh, like most of Nolan's films, there uh, he he did shoot quite a bit of it on seventy millimeter film, which made its way into the IMAX print, uh, but which did not make its way into the the normal theatrical. Uh, release and did not make its way into the prints that we are streaming on our streaming services so um and overall paramount did a pretty good job i mean uh with all this stuff you can easy kind of fuck it up but uh paramount seems to it, the print looked great on on uh, uh on the streaming service so um so that's a little bit about the uh tech specs um so let's try to get into the thematic analysis because that's really what makes this podcast tick are the themes. And I mean, the first thing I have to say about Interstellar is that it does a better job of any film ever in, in uh, incorporating certain scientific concepts, uh, which is something that I really appreciate. So most science fiction films, uh, I think basically all science fiction films, all films that have to do with space travel virtually all of them uh never take into account the time dilation uh, of relativity and so you see people zipping around space and you know it, it it's a uh, first of all there, there's faster than light travel which breaks the laws of physics so it's one thing uh, but even if we were able to travel faster than light uh you know, because of the time dilation of relativity we wouldn't actually be getting there at that right so it, it takes 15 hours for someone to travel from earth to a distant planet let's say uh you wouldn't be the people on earth wouldn't have experienced that as 15 hours they would have experienced as, as i believe a much longer time yeah i believe a much longer time than that um and so if you did a 15 hour round trip to this planet 15 hours back you know you a day would have passed for you but an enormous amount of time would have passed for the people on earth uh, and so time is relative like that and that's what I mean by the time dilation of relativity. Time, time is 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 relative, and it, it uh, how we experience time depends on ooh, depends on how fast we're going relative to other objects. It also depends on gravity. Uh, and so, almost most science fiction films, television shows, whatever, just even novels, completely ignore this because it it is so counterintuitive to our experience here on Earth. Uh, but Interstellar embraces this because it is scientifically accurate. If we do travel to the stars, the astronauts who are traveling are going to experience time very differently than uh, the people back home on Earth. Uh, and and you'll see in the film, uh, you know, Matthew McConaughey is gone for what seems like not that long, but his daughter grows up from a child to a full adult during that time. And to the best of my knowledge, those uh, calculations are roughly accurate, right? Like they, I think they calculated how much time would pass, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the reason for that is um, because he spends time 
on a planet that is has much higher gravity than uh, the Earth. Uh, and so the, the gravity, don't quote me on this because I'm not a theoretical physicist, uh, but 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 basically the 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 gravitational field of of the planet makes time pass more slowly for him than it does for people back on Earth, uh, uh, and so you know Murph grows up from a tiny child uh, into a woman, um, because uh, while her father is spends a few hours on that planet. Uh, and so what I love about Interstellar is that it not only uh, depicts all of that accurately, and I believe, and there are books about this, and I should mention this earlier, but there, there are whole books written about the science of Interstellar. So, you know, go read those books if if that's something you, you that, that interests you. Um, but and but I believe that the, the depictions and even the calculations are actually very accurate. So it depicts everything accurately but it also depicts it emotionally right it depicts the emotional reality of what it would be like to have your father you know uh spend a few hours on the planet on, on a distant planet uh but then have you grow up without your father right uh, and it depicts emotionally what it was like for him to see his children uh turn in fr turned from children to fully grown adults in the blink of an eye and to come back to the spaceship and have all these messages from them uh, uh, with you know, hey, here's my new boyfriend, here's my new husband, here's my new, ch here's my child. We name it after you, we named it after grandpa. You know, it, um, it, the the, you know, the emotional impact of having your entire, of missing your entire children's childhoods, your children's entire childhoods. There you go, um, by just spending a few hours on a planet uh, and getting trapped there and, and wasting a few minutes. It, it it brings home the time dilation of relativity on a human emotional level, right? So to me, that was absolutely amazing to see. Absolutely amazing to see. Uh, because it that is such a difficult thing to do. It's so difficult that I don't think any movies ever really attempted it, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, and of course, Nolan is known for playing with time. I believe his breakout film, Memento, which I haven't seen, but I believe that also plays with time. Dunkirk plays with time. Tenet plays with time. Nolan likes to play with time uh, in a way that few filmmakers do, but that is sort of one of his signatures. Um, and I think it would have been very easy for him you know, to play with time in the same way he does in all his other films. Uh, which is to say to do it in a way that is creative and interesting, but not necessarily scientifically accurate. And he didn't do that. Right? You'll notice in this film, he sticks precisely to what is scientifically accurate about the time dilation of relativity. Uh, and so that's that's really amazing. And as someone who I enjoy science, I read a lot about science, I don't fully understand all of these scientific concepts. I don't think anyone really uh does who just you know reads about it right i mean you have to really be a scientist to fully understand them but i do i kind of get the basics of it right i mean i get that when i watch star trek that's not really how it would work um and so to see it depicted like that was was really amazing um another scientific concept that the film accurately uh, portrays is how human beings would travel to other star systems 
So, because faster than light travel is not possible, we think, how, you know, how human beings wouldn't just get in a spaceship and go directly to another star system because it would take too long. So, there are, and, and, you know, science fiction writers know this, and so they, they get around this in various ways. They get around it in uh, generation ships, for example, where people are sleeping. So you put people into some sort of hibernation or stasis, uh, and then, um, you know, they'll get there 20 years later, but um, but they wouldn't have aged because they're in some sort of stasis, which is theoretically possible, right? That's theoretically possible that we might be able to invent some sort of technology. Uh, it's more theoretically possible than inventing factors like travel, so that makes sense. So that's sort of another another way of getting around this problem is a generation ship, right? So you can have uh, people that you know, say it takes two hundred years to get from Earth to a to a distant star system. Um, you know, you can have a ship full of people where entire generations pass and they never see anything but the ship. And it will be their descendants, right? Their grandchildren or their great grandchildren of the original um, inhabitants and the original um, crew of the ship that actually arrived at the destination. Uh, the The ancestors would have died by the time they get there. Uh, what Interstellar does is uh, even more creative than that, uh, and that is that it it uses this theoretical possibility of a wormhole which is, to be fair, only really a theoretical possibility. Uh, it's, it's, it's very unlikely that this sort of thing could happen, but it is possible. This is my understanding of the science, right? So it's very unlikely that you, can, that you can create a wormhole. It's very unlikely that wormholes even exist. But the theories that we currently have about how the world works, our, our best understanding of physics, says that there is a small possibility. Yeah, maybe something like that is possible. Right? Um, and... How it would work would be exactly what you, is depicted in the film is that uh, you know you would create a wormhole somewhere near Earth, fly there, and then you'd be instantly transported to uh, another part of the galaxy or another part of the um, uh, another part of the universe. Like, I don't think it even matters uh, how proximate you are. Um, and I don't think that I know there's an, there's a visualization of going through the wormhole that I don't think is scientifically accurate. I think it would just be sort of instantaneous. You'd just be sort of fly through, then you'd be on the other side of it. Um, and they did that visualization for effect, obviously. But in theory, that would be a way to travel to another star system. Uh, and another very creative aspect of Interstellar is that it uh, the wormhole was created by what um at the time the crew thought to be an alien intelligence but what is in fact humans from the future so humans from the future created a wormhole in their own star system as a window or as a yeah as a, as a passageway to help humans from the past get to the new home world which is fascinating and theoretically possible right uh, because if you can create a wormhole in space you can create a wormhole in time and so it all sort of fits into what is theoretically possible not probable but it's theoretically possible that this could that this could happen so it's uh it's really fascinating i know i know that the filmmakers worked with kip thorne who's a nobel prize winning physicist at caltech to develop these ideas 
and um uh they hewed incredibly close to what is scientifically possible and yet still told a, a, a story with emotional depth um you have the family you know aspect you have uh you know coop and murph and uh and their relationship and also the son i guess um uh but they but they managed to you know make both of those things central right so you have the the story about the survival of humanity you have the story about the family and then you have uh, telling that those two stories in a way that is really as close to scientifically accurate as humanly possible uh, and it managed to achieve all three of those goals with some very minor exceptions but those minor exceptions stand out because of how of how how obsessive they were about being accurate and all the other things right so it's so in other words there are some exceptions to the scientific accuracy but you know one of the reasons why those things irk me so much and stand out so much is everything else is so accurate so i'll give one example and and they're actually quite large elements to the film uh, and that's another reason why they stand out. But to be fair, I, I, I do think that it, one of the reasons why they, they they attract so much criticism is because everything else is so good, right? So it's just like, I, I wish they would just, you know, had had come up with something better for this. So anyway, I'll, I'll explain what they are. So first of all, the disaster, which is, after all, the thing which sets off the whole plot of the film. So it's kind of an important thing. The disaster that is facing Earth is never fully explained, and the explanations that we have doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So the disaster basically is some sort of crop failure, or uh, the crops are failing, and it's because there's nitrogen bacteria in the air. <sighs> I mean, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> all right. So first of all, you know, you're, you're talking about a film that you know, where we're exploring uh, interstellar space in advanced, you know, um, spaceships and, you know, with the highest technology. If we can explore interstellar space, we can figure out how to grow crops, right? Like that, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, yeah, there could be some sort of environmental change in the atmosphere that makes it hard for us to grow things, I guess, um, that that doesn't stop us from growing things indoors, which we already do in greenhouses. Uh, and of course, our our scientists are very good at genetic engineering now. Whatever the issue is with the atmosphere, unless it burns off completely or is completely devoid of carbon dioxide or something, um, which is what plants feed on, you know, our scientists can genetically modify organisms that can that can thrive in those environments, right? We, we already have GMO technology today in 2021 that allows us to adapt to most things, right? Um, they create drought-resistant crops. They create crops that, you know, uh, resist disease and pests. You know, they can create crops that uh, are adapted to changes in, that, in the atmospheric composition. But it seems like that's what it is. And again, it's never fully explained, which is another annoying thing about about the film is that 
it never really fully explains what's happening uh, on Earth. It just sort of makes these allusions to crop failures, and you see images of dust bowls, and, and it's mentioned once that the some sort of plague is it's like reverse nitrogen fixing or something like it's it's putting too much nitrogen in the atmosphere and i don't it doesn't really make a lot of sense um that first of all that wouldn't happen even if it did happen our scientists would probably find ways of uh, adapting the plants to so that they would grow it you know um it just doesn't make a lot of sense Right. If we can explore the stars, we can figure out how to grow shit. Uh, if we can grow shit underground, we can grow things hydroponically in a greenhouse. Like, there's just no reason for us to have crop failures. Food might be more expensive if we did things that way, but we it wouldn't be so scarce that it would um, cause these sorts of global crop failures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't buy the disaster, and that's sort of an issue because you can think of a lot of things that. <clears throat> A lot of disaster scenarios that actually would make a lot of scientific sense. Um, you know, I, um, some sort of gravitational anomaly or something that suddenly appeared. A black hole that uh, suddenly transects uh, uh, the solar system's orbit and <clears throat> starts dragging planets out to it or something. You, know, I don't, you can think of some Earth getting ejected from its orbit for some reason, right? Like, you can think of certain things that actually do make sense. Um including runaway global warming. Uh, and it's weird when you see the film, you almost get the idea, you almost get the sense that the filmmakers thought runaway global warming would make a great, uh, a great um, disaster scenario to kickstart this script. But if we do that, then there'll be political implications and they'll be, we'll be criticized. And so it's almost as if they came up with something that was sort of similar to global warming, but it wasn't global warming to avoid the political issues and so it was just it ended up being a muddled mess and i think if they had found some sort of scenario where the earth is really going to be destroyed um and it made scientific sense it would have just it would have been a perfect film right because i never fully bought into the idea that uh that the species had to flee the earth because of crop failures. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. And the film is so good on all its other points. Uh, but to have the, the whole impetus of the film, right, the starting point of the film, be so scientifically off base, it just, uh, you know, it it's very noticeable and it, it just sort of takes you out of, of the movie, which is otherwise a great movie, but it just sort of takes you out of the film that way. Um, another problem with the disaster scenario, and aside from, okay, so like the crop failures wouldn't happen, even if they did happen, we would adapt. Um, but the other problem is that even if all of those things happened, right? So even even if the crop started failing, the atmosphere was poisoned, um, we couldn't find a way to adapt and we needed to flee the earth, it wouldn't be obvious why we would flee to another solar system when Mars is right there. Right, Mars is not a perfect planet for human habitation, for sure, but it's a hell of a lot closer than traveling to another star system, and it doesn't seem to be all that different from the planet that they ended up on. Right, so the planet that they ended up on, which was I don't know, they named it after the the scientists, right? But whatever, whatever the whatever the name of that planet was, I mean, the planet 
um, in the final scene that was humanity's new home or whatever doesn't really look all that different from Mars. <laughs> and Mars is right at our doorstep. So that was another scientific issue with it is that, uh, you know, I don't think that the sorts of disasters would happen. Even if they did happen, we would adapt. Even if we couldn't adapt and had to flee the Earth, we wouldn't necessarily flee to a distant solar system. We would flee to Mars, right? And so to have a really realistic scenario where human beings had to flee the solar system, you'd have to get rid of both Earth and Mars, right? You'd have to, and that's probably it. I'm trying to think of another place we could go in the solar system. No, there's not a lot. I mean, there's a couple of asteroids that are probably habitable. Uh, Titan might have life, but it wouldn't be good for humans. Uh, we could build some sort of artificial, uh, you know, sphere or something that orbits the sun. But basically, that's it. Basically, you have Mars, uh, you have a couple asteroids, and you have some sort of artificial you know, thing you could construct that orbits the sun. But that's basically the options, right? Venus is too hot. Mercury is too hot. Uh, none of the other planets ha are rocky. Uh, so, um, so they would, I mean, you wouldn't have anything to stand on. I mean, would, <laughs> Jupiter, you know, Jupiter has too much gravity. I mean, none, none of these other planets would work. It's basically Mars a few little asteroids, or you construct some sort of a space station or something. Um, and so you'd have to get, to have a really scientifically plausible scenario by which humans are required to flee the solar system, you really need to address all of those points. Um, maybe not the last one, because honestly, I mean, it'd be very difficult to construct an artificial, uh, you, need, you need to make something like the size of a moon or something, right? It's not easy. So, um, but certainly you need to, explain why and and even the and the asteroids too are not ideal right but you need to explain mars right if the earth became uninhabitable you need to explain why don't humans just flee to mars uh, and so they didn't deal with mars at all um they didn't fully explain what was so wrong with the earth and so to have something that would like you know have some sort of a an event that happens in the solar system that affected Earth and Mars equally. Uh, and it was slow, but it was progressive, and you knew their fate. So, I mean, like, it's not some sort of a black hole suddenly appear, have both Earth and Mars be hurtling toward the black hole, and it takes 200 years, but eventually they'll be swallowed up or something. That would be, oh, shit, we need to leave the solar system, right? That would be, oh, fuck, we need to get out of here. Um, but to have crop failures, eh, I don't know. Crop failures to me don't seem like a reason to flee the solar system. Yeah. Uh, we can probably handle crop failures now. Wouldn't have been true you know, 500 years ago, but now we have technology. We can handle that kind of shit. Um, and even if we couldn't, we can just go to Mars. So mm. it, it, it's hard. It, it's a tough sell, right? The, the, the disaster didn't make a whole lot of sense. And that's what kicked off the whole film. So, that's a big issue. Um, the other big issue, I think, is the immaterial... The, the assertion that the film makes that love is immaterial. Uh, so what do I mean by that? I mean, the film seems to be saying that love transcends space and time. Not that it's not... That it exists outside of that realm. And that's stupid. Um, that's very stupid. Uh, you know, love, if you want to define it scientifically 
is, you know, an evolved emotion that, that humans and probably other species have, right? It's an attachment. We have those attachments for very good reasons because, uh, you know, human uh, children are not able to fend for themselves for a much longer period of time than other species. So we need to be in love with our children, so we take care of them. We also need to be in love with our partners, so we can cooperate in childcare. That's basically the purpose of love. That's why it evolved. But love is something that evolved within a particular species. It is not something that exists outside the realm of space and time. And so that also seemed pretty stupid to me. Uh, and not, not, I'm not saying that the love between uh, Cooper and his daughter was stupid. That was real, and that's great, and that's very human. Uh, and I love that that was included in the story. But what I'm saying is, is that that love is not immaterial, right? It, it exists in Coop's brain. It exists in Murph's brain. Uh, and the power, of, it doesn't make love any less powerful to simply acknowledge that it is, you know, part of the human experience rather than part of you know, the universe experience. It's not built into the fucking universe, right? It's Love is definitely not built into the universe. If love were built into the universe, uh, the universe wouldn't be such a cold, desolate, a heartless place. Right? Love is not built into the universe. It is built into our human psychology. Uh, but materially, it, it exists not in you know the space-time uh, continuum or outside the space-time continuum, as they seem to think. Uh, it exists materially within our brains. Right? It, it is uh, you know wired into our how our neurons are connected. Right, that that's where it exists. So the love you see between Cooper and his daughter, um, which is the central love relationship of the film. Well, there's also love between um, between uh, Doctor Brand and her father. You know, there's there's other love stories as well, but that's the central love story. Um, that is real. It's powerful. It exists, but there's no reason for the filmmakers to suggest that it exists you know, independent of time and space and all of that. I think that all was just stupid. It felt mawkish and sentimental and unscientific and not befitting a film that in so many other ways was profoundly scientific. And um, it just wasn't necessary. There was no, you know, the love, love, depicting the love story in the film is what one of the central things that made the film work. So you can't take that out. Shouldn't take that out. That was hugely important to the film itself. But there's no reason to to make love immaterial. Right? There's no reason to privilege love and and give it some sort of special uh, status in physics. Or I mean, it just, there's just no reason for that. It it just came off as very unscientific and takes you out of a film that is otherwise incredibly scientifically accurate. So, um, so I think, um, I think that was not a positive aspect of the film and it definitely stood out as something that, something that was incredibly, um, incredibly disappointing. Um, but the the general idea of of the fact that humanity's future must lie in the stars 
that is actually something that's really fascinating and also accurate, although, although the time scale in the film might not be accurate. But it is certainly um, true that eventually the Earth will become uninhabitable. We're actually about halfway through the Earth's habitability period, which is pretty crazy, right? So in other words, there's this, um, when the Earth was first forming, it was too hot to support life uh, because of the energy from the Earth's formation. Um, and then uh, it became capable of supporting life. But eventually the sun will expand uh, and make it too hot to support life again. Uh, and the atmosphere will burn off and all that. Uh, it's still a few billion years away, but from the period where it was too hot uh, for life to form to where it'll again be too hot for life to form for a different reason, because the sun's coming, uh, that period is, we're halfway through that period right now. Incredibly. So, you know, Humanity, this is difficult, it's hard to say, because um, so much time, there's so much time between then and now, if if human beings have descendants to two billion years from now, let's say, they won't look anything like us, they won't be anything like us, really, because uh, so much time has passed that evolution will have turned whatever our descendants are into completely different species. Right? And I, I don't mean... Uh, through genetic engineering or anything like that. I just mean because so much time will have passed. Uh, whoever our descendants are going to be are going to be nothing like us. So it's actually one interesting um, fact about, about human existence is that human species is going to end one way or another. It's just sort of a question as if we evolve into something else or if we go extinct before we evolve into something else. But we, as Homo sapiens, this species that we are right now, are not going to exist forever. It's, impo it's impossible for us to exist forever. Because we will evolve into something that is no longer human at some point. Um, it may take many millions of years, but we, we will evolve into something else at some point. Um, you know, we'll look somewhat similar, just the way that we look somewhat similar to chimpanzees or whatever. But we will evolve into... into something that is so different, we'd have to call it a new species at some point. Um, and those, um, our descendants will eventually have to flee the earth. If we have them, we'll eventually have to flee the earth. Um, and of course, it's also possible, as the film depicts, that something might come along before that time to make the earth uninhabitable. Uh, whether it's an asteroid strike or or a nuclear holocaust or, you know, something that, uh, something human-made or something natural, but it could be that something could happen that make the Earth uninhabitable. So the idea that we need to be a multi-planet species in order to ensure our survival, I think is an absolutely solid idea. It's something that Elon Musk talks about a lot uh, in the context of Mars and why it's important to, um, to colonize Mars. So that if something happens to Earth, at least humanity doesn't uh, isn't extinguished. Um, and so that general concept, I think, is uh, is very scientifically accurate. I just wish that they would have come up with a better disaster in the film because this is not a legit disaster. Like this disaster 
scenario sucks. Um, and the film does such a good job of depicting everything else. It also does a good job of depicting uh, greed and you know depths that that humans will go to to survive. So Matt Damon's character sort of. Uh, uh, sort of exemplifies those traits, and I, you know, I think, you know, how can you blame, um, how can you blame uh, man for doing what he did? Right? It's hard to, uh, I, I mean, I understand that they kind of swore that it would be a suicide mission, but you know, human psychology can only handle loneliness and isolation and certain death for so long. Uh, it's not surprising that he eventually cracked and that he eventually, you know, succumbed to the temptation to, um, to do what he did, which is to pretend that his planet was habitable just so people would come and find him. Uh, um, that is an aspect of human human psychology that is very true to life it's very i mean people care about their survival more than they care about anything else right uh and there's only rare exceptions to that right kamikaze pilots or you know i mean you you can find exceptions but it's 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 rare most people most of the time care about their survival first and foremost above everything else uh and um sometimes you care more about your kids than you do about your own life uh, you see rare examples of people sacrificing their lives for strangers. That happens, but um, but most people care about you know themselves first and foremost. And uh, you shouldn't really be surprised by that. You shouldn't be really surprised that that man did what he did. They probably should have built some sort of <laughs> system for that, some sort of redundancy or something, right? But um, uh. So I like that. I like that aspect of it too. I mean, I think you know, good filmmaking is about truth, and there's so much truth in this film, uh, from the scientific truth of time dilation or relativity, scientific truth of how we travel to other uh, stars, the truth of human nature that is revealed through uh, through man's character, the truth about um, how important love is to uh, to human experience and human. Um, survival uh, again there's no reason why they needed to make love immaterial but but uh, certainly love is incredibly important to, to humans as a species the difficulty of maintaining those loving relationships through uh, through the distance um, of interstellar uh, travel and, and, and through the time dilations that are inherent in interstellar travel that is you know, fascinating and awesome. I mean, it's crazy to see at the end of the film to see Cooper meet his daughter and his daughter is, you know, way older than he is. Um, but that is completely accurate as to how, uh, how interstellar travel would work. And so it, it, you know, I, I love that truth. I love a film that can tell that kind of truth and to, and to depict it visually and to depict it emotionally like that is, uh, is really incredible. Um, and you know, it also told the truth about about the fragility of humans' existence on Earth. Uh, I don't think that the scenario they came up with uh, was a great scenario. I think there's I could probably come up with a better scenario if I <laughs> spent a weekend trying to do that. I could probably come up with a better scenario myself. 
Um, but, uh, you know, the, the central truth of, you know, humans are not entitled to live on this planet forever, that eventually we're going to have, have to figure out a way to leave, uh, that could come, you know, at any moment that we don't really know when that moment will come. Probabilistically speaking, it's probably not going to be tomorrow, probably not going to be 200 years from now. Could be a million years from now, could be three million years from now, could be a billion years from now. We don't really know. But, you know, nothing about the way the physics of the universe works entitles us uh, to this planet and entitles us to this um, uh, to this wonderful existence that we have. It can be taken away from us in a moment through some sort of uh, some sort of disastrous um, happening. And so you know, we do need to have a plan B, actually. You know, they talk in the film, they have the plan A, they have plan B. We need to have plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You know, we need to have lots of plans as to how we're going to survive uh, because the universe doesn't care if we survive. It really doesn't give a fuck. Notice the universe did not create the wormhole, right? Uh, aliens didn't create the wormhole. Humans created the wormhole from the future. Right? Humans from the future created wormhole for humans from the past. Um, and so the only people that care about our survival, the only thing in the universe that cares about humanity's survival is humanity. Everybody else could give a fuck. Except maybe dogs, because we bred dogs to care about us. <laughs> but really, any, any, all the other species, uh, the universe itself, everybody else could give a fuck whether or not we survive. Um, uh, and so we can't take our survival for granted. Right? We have to make plans as to how we're going to survive. And we have to deal with the universe honestly. We have to live in, live in the reality that the universe does not care about us. Uh, that is a very different perspective than a perspective, uh, than a religious perspective, for example, uh, which says that there is you know, a creator God and the creator God made us and cares about us and is looking, after, looking out for us. And you know, something goes wrong, hey, don't worry, he's got it. You got crop failures. Hey, don't worry. God's not going to let us all die. So let's, you know, let's just stay here. We'll figure it out. Um, nope. That's not the way the universe works. Right? The only people who care about us and our survival is ourselves. And so we, we can't uh, just hope and pray that the universe is, is going to allow us to exist. We need to come up for plans on how we're going to exist uh, and how we might exist outside of this planet if if this planet can no longer support us and so and there's nothing in the universe there's no god there's no you know spirits there's nothing in the universe that says that this planet needs to support us it just happens to be that way we happen to evolve on this planet at a time when it was very uh, suitable for sustaining our kind of life um but that was just a happenstance that was not something that was necessarily preordained not something that was planned by any sort of creator. It was just happenstance. Uh, and um, what chance giveth, chance can take it away, right? Um, you know, we, uh, we've been very lucky as a species, but we can, our luck can turn at any moment. And uh, we need to be ready for that. But I, I think that's really the central message of the film, and I, I like that truth. So I like that truth. I like the the way that 
that survival story is depicted in um, uh, in as scientifically accurate way as possible. And there's just a you know a couple little things there with the immateriality of love doesn't make any sense, especially in a film that is all about how how uh, the universe is material and only material. It makes, really makes no sense to to claim that love is immaterial. Uh, and then the disaster scenario itself, although the idea that a disaster um, is destroying the earth and we need to flee is an excellent idea, the actual disaster that they concocted was suboptimal. Right, this this is not the best scenario for this film. There there could have been a much better scenario that would have worked for the purposes of the film. Um. So um, yeah, I don't know. That's my take on Interstellar. I, I think I do think it's one of the best sci-fi films ever made, uh, because it achieves so much and so much that no other filmmakers really ever have the balls to take on. And no one ever really had the balls to take on, uh, the time dilation of relativity. Ever, I mean, to my knowledge, I don't think anyone's ever made a f film about that or which incorporates that accurately, right? Um, and they had the balls to take on humanity survival, which I guess is not uncommon, but they did, like I said, they did it in a way that actually, um, that actually makes sense scientifically. And I, I mean, the, the film just tells a lot of truths about humanity's relationship to, to, the cold, uncaring universe that we live in. And ultimately, I think that that is what redeems the film and and also, you know, the the emotional the way that it 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 tells that story through in a way that makes emotional sense to human beings living today, right? It tells it through family relationships, which is something that's universal and that everyone can understand. Um, and so it, there's artistry in, in taking these high-minded scientific concepts and embedding them in classic storytelling techniques that have worked from time immemorial and will work, you know, for thousands and thousands of years in the future, right? A family story is, is the ultimate in relatable stories, right? Because everybody has a family, everybody has a mother, everybody has a father, everybody has... Everybody has siblings, and you know everybody goes. Okay, not everybody has siblings, sorry, but everybody has a mother and father. Uh, but you know everyone has a family. Everyone, even people who um, are adopted, or even you know everybody has a family. Right? If we don't have one, we sort of create one out of our friends or out of our teachers, right? So everybody can relate to these sorts of family relationships, and so you're taking these incredibly difficult to understand scientific concepts, and you're bringing them. Um, uh, into a relatable experience through through a family story, and so it's. I mean, you you cannot underestimate the artistry of that. So there's so many good things about the film. Just a couple of little things that, uh, if they had done that differently, it would have been a perfect film. I mean, really, this would have been up there with 2001. It it is sort of up there with 2001, to be honest, because the the scale and the scope of it, and the the humanity of it. Right, 2001 is a film that is. Mm. Um, it it is cold and uncaring. In in the same way that Interstellar depicts the universe as cold and uncaring, but it also sort of depicts future humans in the same way. Um, and Interstellar is interesting because it it accurately depicts the universe as cold and uncaring, but it really celebrates the fact that human beings are not that human beings care about one another, 
and we care about ourselves and we care about our future and we care about our children and you know i mean it, it um it really celebrates that in a way that 2001 doesn't uh but i um yeah if, if, again if if just a couple of those things you know the immateriality of love have been removed and a better disaster scenario have been created boom i mean you have Easily one of the best films of all time. Instead, you end up with one of like the five best science fiction films of all time. Right? It's not a bad movie. I love the movie, but it, it's just, it's just so frustrating when you get a film that's ninety six percent perfect. And it's just like fuck you guys, man. Like fuck you guys for missing that four percent. Right? Uh, that's sort of how I feel about Interstellar. Like it, it is an absolutely favorite film, an, an absolutely fantastic film, one of my favorites, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but God, if you just done those two things differently, it would have been like. Boom. Whoa. Mind-blowing, right? Um, and I do think this is a film that will age well. Again, because it's so focused on family relationships, um, because the scientific principles upon which it's based are unlikely to change, right? It's unlikely that, um, you know, the fastest line travel is going to happen. It's unlikely that um, uh, uh, that we'll ever sort of... It's unlikely that we're ever create a wormhole but it's also unlikely the robot theoretically rule them out so i mean i just think uh, it, it's a film that will stand the test of time because the the themes that it deals with the family relationships even the theme of, of greed and survival that man's character represents uh and of course the you know the the idea that humanity uh is not destined to be on earth forever these are things that are all going to stand the test of time and so i i do think this is one of those films that um you know i, I remember gravity was a film that i really liked when it came out uh and over time i think that gravity's reputation has sort of um rightfully been downgraded because it at the end it, it was just sort of an adventure film it was an interesting adventure film but it, it didn't have a lot to say about humanity uh, whereas Interstellar, I think, has a ton to say about humanity, and it's all th truths that will stand the stand the test of time. And so I, I think I think this is a film that'll be very well regarded for um, a long time to come. <sighs> Anyways, that uh, that was Interstellar. It, it's a huge film. I you know this doesn't do justice. And to be honest, I am phoning these episodes in because I'm so busy with everything else. Um, and so this isn't my best, but, um, um, I definitely encourage anyone who is interested in the film to read more about it because this is one of those films that has sort of a, a, um, whole genre of criticism out there. And a lot of it is very good, right? So the books, uh, the science of interstellar, who is it? I think is it Mikachu Kako or I don't know, someone, but th there are books out there, many books about the science of interstellar. And, uh, you know, just discussing the scientific concepts that they use. Oh, Kip Thorne did that. Yeah, okay. So the guy who actually, um, the guy who actually advised the film wrote a book about the science that's in the film. Uh, it's a very good book. I haven't read it, but I've I listened to a podcast with, um, with Kip Thorne who wrote it. And, uh, it's fascinating just kind of going, going into the science of all of it. Um, and so definitely to check that book out and there's more out there about Interstellar. Uh, it, it is one of those films that, that really gets people talking. And so I'd 
there's there's a ton of good stuff out there. This has been decent, but there's a ton of good stuff out there if you're, if you're more interested in, in in Interstellar. Um, and of course, when the new podcast drops, I'll let everybody know. And the, the website is up, so you can go to DanielBarkley.com. You can um, check out the um, everything that I'm up to. Give you a little advance notice of sort of things I'm working on. So, all right, that's it. Uh, thank you so much. That was the pictures, and that was Interstellar. I'd like to kiss you, but I just washed my hair. Bye.